So I'm going to start by sharing just a little bit about who I am, so you kind of have an idea about who this guy is that's sharing with you this morning. I've, I've been ministering, like I said, within the Church of God for nearly 30 years now. That's hard for me to believe. It really is. Most of my roles in, in within ministry have overlapped, meaning that I have rarely had one job at a time. Okay? So if you've had multiple jobs at one time, you know what I'm talking about. And for many years of ministry, I was bivocational, was not full-time uh, or at a place that could provide, you know, just a, a full-time income. I've served as an associate pastor, a youth and children's pastor. Um, around the same time, I was a hospice chaplain for both adults and pediatric hospice I did training and served as a chaplain at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and then came to Michigan, where I served as the pastor at Crossroads Church of God in Howell uh, for um, about 15 and a half years, which is where Pastor Rob is at now, um, and they were very grateful for him being uh, their next pastor as well. Four months ago, I transitioned out of the pastorate and now work full-time as a licensed therapist with Focus on the Family, where I work, I get the opportunity to work exclusively with married couples in attempting to, to save marriages. And I, I really love that work. My, my work in the field of mental health started when I was in the Air Force many, many years ago. I had the great opportunity to work with some doctors that were great, great doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. My appetite in this field only grew as I began to feel God's call into ministry in the church. And I realized the need that people had to be healthy in all realms of their life. Spiritually, of course. Physically, emotionally, mentally. In other words, for a person's beliefs, behaviors, feelings, and their thoughts to come from a, a sense and a place of wholeness within their life. You see... Every part of us is interwoven together, which means you cannot affect one part of you without it affecting every part of you on some level and some degree. Whenever I think about this, I always go like this because I see the interwovenness of my fingers. It reminds me of the woodworking that goes into some older furniture. Remember the drawers that you would pull out of older furniture? You'd see the dovetail work in the back and how they just kind of fit together. That, that is very similar to every part of our lives are fit together. And you can't affect one part of your life without affecting every part of your life on some level. Have you ever known someone to be tired physically and then that influenced their emotional well-being? You ever known someone to be hangry? You know what I mean by that? <laughs> well, and then you know what I'm talking about. How about when someone is struggling with their thoughts, maybe negative thoughts, and then that affect them spiritually? How about someone going through a spiritual battle and that have an effect on their emotional well-being? You know what I'm talking about. Every part of us is interwoven together, which means you can't affect one part of you without affecting every part of you. And in my experience working with people, both within the church setting and in the clinical setting, there are two areas of primary importance, two areas of primary importance that I see lacking within people's lives. And these two areas of importance, I believe, 
can be directly related to one's ability to be, to be able to bounce back when the hardships in life hit. And I'm talking about resilience, being able to bounce back. If you're older like me, you might remember those days when you could bounce back physically. That's the reason I don't go roller skating or ice skating anymore. I will not even attempt skiing at this point in my life. I never could ski. I never could figure out how to stop. I could get going okay. They would say, turn the skis inwards. Well, I would do that. And then I would go tumbling. That's how I stopped. I resulted, I, 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 the result of all that is now I, I, can, I go tubing. I can sit on my behind and go down a hill. That's no problem. But roller skating, ice skating, I don't bounce back. I splat. And it hurts a whole lot more. These two areas of importance, again, I believe, can be directly related to one's ability to be able to bounce back when the hardships of life hit, have that resilience. And they also greatly contribute to a person's ability to forgive and build reconciliation. So would you be interested in knowing and more fully understanding what these two areas are and how they come into play in your life? They're actually revealed to us in the beginning of God's word in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And that's where we're going to be. So you open your Bibles to Genesis in chapter 3. And the theme of these two areas of importance carries through the entirety of God's word. You will see them over and over and over again once I point them out to you. You're going to see them. Look with me in Genesis in chapter 3. So in this chapter, let me set it up for you. In this chapter, we read about the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. So Eve and Adam, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And then things begin to happen. Some things begin to take place. Look with me in Genesis in chapter 3, starting in verse 7. The eyes of, I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So right off the bat, something begins to happen to them internally. Something begins to happen to them internally. Suddenly there was a disconnection that occurs. You might think, well, what, what, wouldn't it be more of a connection? That now they see each other in a different light and, and that sort of thing. You would, you would think that that would draw them even closer together. Uh, not so much. So what we see happening internally, suddenly there was a disconnection between the two. And then there was a hiding and a withdrawing from each other in a way they had never experienced before. Hiding and a withdrawing from each other that they'd never experienced before. Look with me in verse 8. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We get the picture that this was something that God did regularly with Adam and Eve. We get the idea that, man, this was just a normal part of God communing with his creation. What a beautiful picture that that, that is. Only this time, 
the disconnection and the withdrawing extended even to their relationship with God, their creator. They were disconnected and withdrawing and hiding from each other. And they were disconnected and withdrawing from their relationship with God. You see what's happening, what's taking place. Starting in verse 9, there are a series of questions asked by God. A series of questions asked by God. The first three questions fall into what, the, what scholars refer to as a Hebrew triad. A Hebrew triad. And within this triad, the greater emphasis is placed on the first question, the first part. And then the second. And then the third. So the greater emphasis is placed on the first part of that, then the second, and then the third. The first question, and the one with the greatest emphasis, is found in verse 9. Look there with me. In verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? Ladies and gentlemen, this was not a question of location for the all-powerful God. He wasn't saying, okay, I give up. Where are you guys at? I, I can't find you here. Yes, I created all of this, but man, you guys hide really well. I can't see you. It was not a question about location. It was a question of relationship. It was as if God were saying, I know where I'm at. I know where I want you to be. Where are you? Where are you? Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam says, I was afraid. And this is the first indication of where fear, where Indication of fear that we have in Scripture. Let me ask you a question. How does fear work in your life? And you might be one of those that say, well, I don't fear nothing. Okay. Um, that happens a lot within church. People are like, oh, I don't live by spirit of fear. Okay. I guarantee there's something that you, that you might be fearful of, though. If you don't like the word fear, what are you trying to avoid? What are you working really hard to try to avoid? That might be what you're fearing. Anybody ever heard of Michael Jordan, basketball player? Yeah, from way back in the 1900s. <laughs> I love that. I can tell my kids now. You know, back in the 1900s, we didn't have cell phones. Our first remote was the brand called Cintia. You remember that brand, Cintia? Cintia up. Can you turn the channel? Cintia. Michael Jordan, top of his game, back in the 1990s, was asked by a news reporter, Michael, is there anything regarding the basketball that you're, that you're afraid of? And he says, afraid? Why would I be afraid of anything? I get to the gym before anybody else. I practice longer and harder than anybody else. I watch more film than anybody else. I'm not afraid. Hmm. Or could that be why you're doing all of that? So if you know anything about Michael Jordan's um, story, he was cut from the basketball team 
in high school. And he determined that would never happen again. Fear. We see it pop up here in the book of Genesis. How does fear work in your life? Well, in mine, when something gets bumped into in my life, my mind will reach out into the future with all of the what-ifs. Oh, man, if this, then that. And then if that, then this. See how that works? And it just keeps escalating. And at the same time, in my mind, it reaches back into the memory banks of all the old messages that I have held on to in my life that have served to almost define me at times. All of my faults, all of my failures, and my faults of the past and the unease of my future, they feed off of each other. And I get this thing going. And it just spins and spins and spins. And it creates almost like an electromagnetic field. And every time these thoughts and stuff spin around, something else from my past gets attached to it. and comes back around. Oh, it amplifies all of the anxiety and the what if. It just keeps going and going and going. In verse 11, if you look there with me, God said, who told you that you were naked? The second question that God asked, the second part of that Hebrew triad is, who told you that you were naked? It, it ties directly to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, where it says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Shame. Are you aware of the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt says, I have done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. You see the nuance there? You see the difference? Guilt speaks to what has been done. Shame consumes my identity. Guilt says, I am this, and I've done this, and they don't fit together. Who I am and what I've done, they don't fit. Shame says, you did this, that's because you are this, and it just consumes your identity. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus, Paul talks of, of the work that Christ does in our life. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That condemning aspect that says, oh, you are that. God doesn't see that. He sees us through the righteousness of Christ. He says, now, you have a new identity. A new identity. The third question of the triad is also in verse 11. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Have you eaten from the tree that I, have, that I commanded you not to eat from? Notice the emphasis. 
the least of God's concern falls on what they had done. The least of God's concern falls on what they had done. Not that that was not important. That's important. Because I think back to how I treated my children as they were growing up. (laughs) I would usually start out with, what have you done? That sound familiar for any of you parents? (laughs) What have you done? Oh, I wish I I could have realized this emphasis years ago. I guess I'll just have to make up for it with my grandkids whenever they get here. <laughs> that whole condemnation thing and how we judge ourselves. You realize that we make judgments all day long. We do. We make judgments all day long. We judge between what's good and what's bad. We judge between what's right, what's wrong. We, we judge between what's good and what's better in our lives. We make judgments all day long. The judginess, though, that the Bible talks about is when we tack on that label. Ah, oh, I judge that this is wrong. That means you are this. Think about how we judge ourselves. Oh, I did that. Oh, that means it's because I'm this way. I'm this. We... We throw on that condemnation. That's why I love in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 there. There's no condemnation. God sees me through the lens of Christ because I have received the forgiveness that comes through Christ. Let's go on. God's first question, and most important in this Hebrew triad, was where are you? Where are you? Ladies and gentlemen, this speaks to value. Value. God's second question of who told you you were naked speaks to their vulnerability. When I say vulnerability... I'm talking about a person's exposure to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. And the reality is we are all vulnerable at some point. If you ever think that, nope, I am no longer vulnerable. There's no vulnerable part of me. You have no idea how close you are to falling. No idea. I don't live in fear about falling, but I understand how vulnerable I can be. Value speaks to a person's worth and importance. Their worth and importance. You know, for the longest time, as I read Genesis in chapter 3, I viewed God as being mad, disappointed, and just doling out the punishment. That's what I thought. Here was a mad, disappointed God he was ready with that, with that punishment. He was ready to dole it out. And then in verse 12, starts the finger pointing and blaming. Adam said, the woman you put here with me. Now in verse 13, there's a fourth question. 
that God directed toward Eve. And it actually echoes the same question that he asked Adam in verse 11 about what they had done. The question that God asked Eve is, what is this you have done? Now, it was, it was not a question or statement of disbelief. God wasn't saying, I can't believe that you did this. It's beyond my imagination that you could have done this. It was not a statement. It was not a question of disbelief. It was an invitation to begin healing, not to assign blame. It was an invitation to, for healing. Usually whenever conflict occurs, think about this in your own life. Whenever conflict occurs, we are quick to bring up some very unhelpful questions, are we not? The number one is, what really happened? Well, you said this. <laughs> no, I didn't. I said this. Well, no, the tone that you used was this. No, it was not the tone that I used. Why did you do that that way? I didn't do that that way. I did it that way. No, I saw you. You did it that way. What really happened? Do you realize in court that some of the most unreliable testimony comes from eyewitness testimony? You realize that? Because I to you, if my wife and I, if Angela's here and we, we shared with you some of the stuff how we get sideways with each other, you all ever get sideways with your spouse? Okay, I'm not the only one? Okay. So when Angela and I get sideways with each other, we have two different accounts of what really happened. Make sense? A second question that's unhelpful. Well, who's at fault? Well, whose fault is it? If we could just determine whose fault it is, then we can move forward. Which then leads into question number three. Well, who's to blame or what's to blame? Well, I did this because of this. It's not really my fault. And then we get to the fourth question, which is not a bad question. It's just premature in so many different ways. Okay, what are we going to do to fix it? We just got to fix it. And if you ask me, I'll tell you how you need to fix it. <laughs> I've died on all of those hills before. I have. But what's really at play goes deeper, a lot deeper, into feelings, into fears, into the wants. What am I really wanting out of this? But that usually gets sidestepped. I'm curious. When you read God's questions recorded in Genesis in chapter 3, whose voice do you hear? For many folks, they hear their own parents' voice. Usually that of someone or someone very close to them, if not their parents, someone very close to them that, that seems disappointed and angry and questioning in disbelief at what they had done. Whose voice do you hear? Is it someone being disappointed and angry? Disbelief at what you have done? How could you? For many, guilt of what was done is covered over with shameful identity. Guilt of what was done is covered over with shameful identity. The enemy of our soul, Satan, 
will use these faults and failures, failures to amplify the fear and anxiety of what's to come. Understanding and value. Understanding our value, I'm sorry, understanding our value and vulnerability before God goes hand in hand with the biblical idea of humility. That God sees me as valuable and vulnerable goes hand in hand with the biblical idea of humility. Oftentimes, when we think of humility, we think of someone who needs, they, they think that they are uh, higher than, and so that person needs a dose of humility to bring them back down. Does it not? We think of someone who needs a dose of humility, someone who thinks that they are higher than or better than. The biblical idea of humility is not only do I not think that I am better than or higher than, I am not less than. Okay? That I have a right view of myself. And I got to tell you, folks, I have seen more damage come from people who have a less than view of themselves than someone who has a higher than view of themselves. And usually someone who has a better than or higher view of themselves, they're simply overcompensating for something that they're fearful of, this less than view of themselves. But having this right view of myself, Having a right view of myself, having a humility in my life informs who I am in relationship to God and who I am in relationship with others. I'm not better than and I'm not less than. It allows me to appreciate what I do well and can accomplish in my life and accept my limitations, accept for what I don't do well and where I do falter. I have a right view of that. A balanced view of that. Hear me. Your value. Your value is not based on what you do. Your value is not based on what you do. Think about this way just for a moment. Think of holding a, a precious newborn child. Okay? You're holding a precious newborn child. You're in the hospital just after the delivery. Someone walks into the room and says, that's a mighty fine-looking baby. I'll give you $100,000 for that baby. Nope. Well, I can see you're driving a hard bargain. I'll give you $500,000 for that baby. There's a reason I don't do this illustration with teenagers, okay? Just saying. I was a teenager once. Think about it. What has that baby done? Nothing. I mean, the baby can't feed itself. It can't change itself. It can't even roll over itself. But yet there's this immense value for this child. Fast forward now, later on, if I were to tell you, oh, there goes Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They are valuable members of this community. What are you thinking? Well, they've done something. They've, they've contributed. They've, they've given money. They've, they've done something good for the, the community. What changed? What determines the value? There's a story told of a little boy who's walking down the street, and he finds this piece of paper on the ground. 
And he says, I, I don't know, but I think that piece of paper is valuable. And so he picks up the piece of paper and he goes to the store and, and he asks the clerk behind the counter, he says, hey, if I give you this piece of paper, can I have that piece of bubble gum? And the clerk says, well, yeah. So the boy slaps that piece of paper up on the counter, grabs his piece of bubble gum and heads out the door as the clerk turns around to give him change for the $100 bill. Who determines the value? The one that holds it? the creator creator determines that value our value is set by our creator even when we have not treated ourselves as valuable even when others fail to see our, our value or treat us with value God sees you and says you are worth the life of my son Jesus Christ because that is what I paid for you God sees how vulnerable we each are as well. Yet he chooses to place within us his Holy Spirit. So back in the day, Old Testament times, New Testament times, they would make these, the potter would make these pots. It was a, a big part of the culture and that sort of thing. They would make the pots, right? And so they would have to make these pots. They couldn't make them outside all the time because of the heat from the sun would dry the clay before they could form it and get it to set. And so they would make these pots inside with very low light. Make sense? Tracking with me? Very low light. And so they would just use the oil lamps. And so what they would do is they would work on these pots and, and get them, you know, some little, some big, some tall, some short, whatever. They would make the pots. And, and, and once they kind of got it set, they would let it begin to dry until it got to just the right consistency to where they could take it outside and they would hold it up to the sun. It was only then that they could begin to see all the little holes, all the little cracks all the little fissures that are there. And the longer they held it up to the sun, the bigger that those things appeared. And then the patchwork would begin. It was not uncommon back in the day to have these pots that would have little leaks in them. <laughs> it was pretty normal, which would mean there would be a need for a constant feeling of those pots. You take any of our lives and you hold us up to the sun, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, you're going to see some flaws. You're going to see some holes that are there. You're going to see some cracks. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is we're all crackpots in some way or another. And you hold us up to the light of the sun you're going to see those flaws. You're going to see that vulnerability within our lives. And I love how 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians verses 6 and 7, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. In verse 7 he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, God knows our vulnerabilities. He knows our weak points. But yet he still sees us as valuable. 
I began today stating that there are two areas of primary importance that I see lacking within people's lives. These two areas of importance, I believe, can, uh, can be directly related to our ability to be able to bounce back when hardships in life hit, to have that resilience, and they also greatly contribute to a person's ability to be able to forgive and build reconciliation with others. When we understand that God sees our lives, he sees your life, and he values you because you are uniquely and fearfully and wonderfully made. When we understand that God sees your frailty and offers you his healing and wholeness in Jesus, then we have opportunity to be loved as God created us to be loved by him. And it allows us to love others as he loves us. When we are able to see other people's value, when we are able to look and see other people's vulnerability, that allows us to be able to really begin to forgive and build reconciliation with others. Without understanding value and vulnerability, I'm afraid we're missing some two very important areas in life. Let us pray as we close. God, I thank you for the opportunity that's been ours just to be here, to look into your word, Lord, to sing praises unto your name. I thank you for each person that's here today, and I pray that there's a deeper and growing knowledge and understanding of the value that you have for us. Lord, that you understand our vulnerability. And that does not make you resist us or run from us. Lord, may that help us to draw even closer to you. We thank you for the opportunity, the possibilities that lie before us because of the value that you place in our lives. Thank you for your son, Jesus, that gives us the opportunity to understand and know your heart. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.